QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Brody. Brody is a visiting fellow with QUT's Centre for Justice. They also work as a manager in the domestic violence space doing perpetrator intervention work. On this episode, Jody and Brody have a bunch of great discussions, including Brody's winding path through professional and academic work, the experience of being queer and facing homophobia and transphobia, reproductive rights, and the interesting things that happen when you change your gender marker. There's also a big discussion around Brody's current job, working with men who use violence. Working with perpetrators is a challenging area and it can be a bit confronting to hear about. If you don't need to hear about that today, maybe jump to another episode. Without any further ado, Brody. Welcome to How To Academia. Who the heck are you? Hello. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> you are so welcome. <laughs> Who are you? So I'm Brody, and I've been affiliated with QT for. Oh gosh, probably 12 years now, maybe even longer. So I started a, a long time ago in doing finance admin and then moved over to studying my PhD and doing teaching and research for the QT Centre of Justice. So I'm still currently a, a visiting fellow of the centre here and my full-time gig is a manager in the domestic violence sector in the perpetrator intervention work. So working with men who have used violence. That is incredible. I have also been with QT for over 12 years, but I'm fascinated in how you got from finance to justice. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I graduated with, with a, an arts degree in politics and literature a long time ago, so what's that, 20, 2007, and couldn't get a job. Couldn't get a job with an arts degree at that point. But also, I mean, I think things have come a long way now in how we integrate student learning into industry-based placements and, and improving that kind of connection. But back then, there was no real transition. There was no placements in, in those kind of degrees and I know that they are now. So yeah, I had no idea how to get a job as an editor, how to get a job, you know, in publishing or anything like that. I originally wanted to be a teacher and I was originally doing education and arts and then I was around, so yeah, into the third year where you then have to decide to just, if you're going to just do the arts component and then graduate the three-year degree or continue with education. And by then I realised, I mean, I knew I was queer. I knew, knew I, I mean, my schooling was only in a, a con, quite a conservative private school. So that had been my only exposure really to the education system. And when I was looking to start teaching, I knew I was queer. I knew I wanted to get a shitload of tattoos. <laughs> and I, the vision I had for me as a school teacher 
at that point, it just wasn't, it, it, I didn't have the vision for it. And I also started to love the conversations that we were having at uni around politics and feminism and gender and realised that that's, if I was going to teach anything, that's what I wanted to teach. Mm. I wanted to be an academic and, and teach at the, the tertiary level. And I knew that there'd be more flexibility in terms of how you present and how you are and just that level of safety and freedom that academics can, not all, but can feel like have. So that's why I did the arts degree. And the intention was, yeah, honours PhD at that age, but I got married at 20 and I needed a job so I didn't go that path at that time and then yeah fell into doing contracts here and there and admin and finance and then got the job at QUT as a, a finance officer at that time so it was really yeah I needed to pay rent <laughs> I mean at that time fuel and food was cheaper but at the same time we only had like yeah it was like 700 bucks to last a week kind of thing, you know. You, I can't imagine doing that now with a mortgage. But yeah, that was leaner times. And yeah, I needed a job. And while I definitely suit admin, I think I'm, I've got a lot of skills in terms of organisation, time management. I can certainly do that work well. I'm used to working with computers. We had laptops at school from like grade five. So it was something that I was like, yeah, this is easy. It just wasn't emotionally challenging and fulfilling in, yeah. in that way and so because I was when I got into that work I was then all right well I'll do a master's accounting and again like it was my GPA was in the sixes and I was getting sevens it was so I could have gone that route um, but I felt I didn't want to give up the dream of teaching at a uni at that point and I also just felt like yeah again I was stuck into that point of oh, I don't feel comfortable being able to present the way that I want being able to you know, talk freely. It still felt like a conservative work environment. Again, this was quite a long time ago, and you know, thinking of QT now, of you know, the commitment in terms of the Alley Network, and you know, I think we have come a long way. Um, so I can't, and I can't speak to the professional sector here, except my husband's an accountant here, so <laughs> maybe I can speak to what it's like to be a professional staff member in a queer one. But yeah, I definitely didn't feel like I could be out and proud myself at that age in that environment and I knew that surely it's going to be better in the School of Justice <laughs> and and I knew um, I knew an academic I knew Ange before I joined so we yeah. you know we'd known each other and at that time I was protesting a lot with the Pro-Choice Action Collective and you know going up to Cairns and when there was the court case and protesting that and I it was just the right time where I was like I'm really passionate about this I want to do something with this research-wise and teaching and so I made the jump and did honours and then the PhD. So yeah, kind of, it's a random four years in my life where I was doing accounting and finance. And I mean, at least I understand what my husband talks about at work. <laughs> yeah, I that, that spreadsheet like 10 minutes ago. I was like, look what they yeah. sent me. I don't know this. You're like, this is yeah. easy. And I mean, I mean, I also, you know, I mean, coming from that arts background, I think idealism, I think sometimes it helps to have the business kind of side yeah. of things and vice versa I think wouldn't it be great if every business student did one year as an arts you know like that was wouldn't it, wouldn't it? like just every degree if you had to do a, a one year philosophy ethics um, you think of all the different degrees and how they would benefit from ethics 101 <laughs> philosophy 101 gender you know so I've, I've yeah if for me it's study is never a waste study yeah. is never a waste of time and it's always yeah enriched my life of doing it so yeah don't regret it glad I have an experience yeah so you said you were really interested in this and wanted to turn it into a PhD what was the this a sense of injustice in, in the world and uh, the effectiveness of activism in being able to change 
the injustice in the world. So I have, I, you know, I, I do consider myself an interdisciplinary research. I, you know, certainly there's threads of methodologies that uh, central into my work, whether it's, you know, doing discourse analysis, Foucault, and, you know, feminist frameworks. But my honest thesis was looking at abortion stigma and then my PhD was on animal rights. So yeah. those were very different, but there's still such, there's still that thread there around what I feel is injustice, either criminally or socially injustice, and how activism can change policy. And that's kind of the overarching thread, I guess, in my research. Yeah. And I, I mean, I made that the, the jump mostly from, like, I'm still very passionate about reproductive rights, especially as a trans person, and bodily autonomy is, I'm very passionate about that. But I also felt really orcs about being a man or a non-binary person doing research on abortion at that time and I think you know feminism has you know become a lot more inclusive I think in some definitely some of the circles that I run in and in terms of activism but at that time I also was feeling awkward about it and yeah wanting to center women's voices in that space and feeling should I be researching in this space and so yeah that's one of my what else my passion about and I'm a vegan and I was passionate about animal rights and so changed my my focus there. But there is still that overarching thread around activism and policy and discourse. There's so much that I want to unpick in there. <laughs> I also want to say it must be a bizarre time for you being interested in reproductive rights and watching Roe versus Wade. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, and it just and it's just such an anti-trans backlash in society right now. Another thing why I, you know, yeah, I mean, re- reproductive rights very passionate about as well as you know reproductive coercion and violence especially working in the domestic violence sector you know I can't get pregnant I'm I'm intersex I don't have the ability to and I'm where my partner and I are both guys so yeah but neither of us have a functioning uterus and (laughs) I blame him just as much as me exactly so for me like doing yeah the reproductive sometimes I'm like oh you, you know I can't relate or it doesn't impact me in the same way that it impacts people who could actually fall pregnant yeah. and have to make those decisions I never have to have a, those decisions around abortion that'll never impact my life but certainly I've been impacted by systems views of uh, misogynistic views around when women should have babies certainly you know when it comes to starting testosterone to manage my sex variation getting a lot of you know medical service that's just the worst case scenario for them you know like no you're like what if you want to have children I'm like but we've proven I can't and what is this miracle that you're talking about but yeah like hysterectomy was always off the table in those conversations having cis male doctors say that well the next thing is um you know an abolition which is burning the uterine lining um which is less painful and I'm like really Unless you have a uterine lining, don't talk to me around what is more painful. So, yeah, I've definitely experienced, I guess, misogyny in the, the medical system, but I would definitely would rather centre the voices who are impacted by whether they can actually fall pregnant or not. But, yeah, I mean, I've... Yeah, I am still very passionate about that work and I'm very passionate about how hopefully that young people are starting to see how to not take for granted rights. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember, you know, because people often say like, oh, would you, would you and your partner consider adopting? And I was like, well, I remember when Campbell Newman got in and took away the rights for queer couples to adopt, yeah. for queer couples to do surrogacy. It happened in one term and they were just gone. And that was at the time where my partner and I were, you know, looking at adopting and having those discussions around 
do we start to change my gender marker everywhere if right now we, on paper, can maybe adopt? Or do we change my gender marker and then now we can't adopt? So we were having, having those conversations at that time and trying to prioritise my mental health over our futures of parents and that kind of stuff. So I'm hoping, you know, with Roverse Weight, I'm hoping younger people today are realising that you can't take rights for granted and that everyone should be an activist when it comes to rights, for your bodily autonomy. I mean, it's not just, gener- there's certainly older generations, people within those generations who also weren't activists, who also took rights for granted, yeah. right? So it's not necessarily what I'm trying to say is it's just a younger cohort, but I hope in terms of the future, looking at that younger cohort of, you know, please listen and, and see how important it is. It's so crazy because I so also remember Campbell Newman. <laughs> we could rant for the next time. <laughs> I'm sorry, people out there in podcast world. But I do remember, like, I had a civil union that was just downgraded overnight. Just yeah. you'd gone from having this marker of... And I can't imagine what it's like to have to be making those decisions of... I'm exactly the same person now, but if I change my gender marker, I'm just this whole different person yeah. that is suddenly yeah. unsafe to adopt and unsafe to care yeah. for children. I mean, my partner and I can't donate blood. That's bizarre. But only because I'm ticking a different box now. Yes. Nothing else has changed. Nothing else has changed about our sex life. <laughs> but, yeah, because I tick the box that I'm trans and we tick the box that we're and you know male and male uh, couple, neither of us can donate blood. Can donate blood. Like, it's... For my part, it's just we just find that incredibly bizarre that nothing else has changed. There's no risky, any riskier behaviour, but because their stats on trans people and their stats on queer men. It's also and a lot of assumptions. So though. many assumptions, so many assumptions, you know, and a lot of people tell to me, well, you could just lie on the form. And I'm like, no, fuck them and fuck them. <laughs> their need for blood then. <laughs> like it's, you know, you get that resentful, you know, when you see how just ridiculous some of the policies are in terms of yeah the assumptions they're making and the discriminatory practices because of that what does that tell you about i guess a passion for challenging policies yeah and that's the thing like yeah it needs people to to be standing up to be saying that this isn't okay to not not just taking things for granted about you know we have this right and it's never going to go away but also not taking for granted the status quo of if we don't have this right and that's okay mm. you know like that that's never going to change you know there was certainly a lot of time that we would have thought that about marriage quality mm. that that's just never going to happen it did happen and it happened because of activists pushing that issue for decades so yeah i think you know there's definitely activists talking about blood donation in that space so yeah i think I'm very interested to see how it will look in 10 years' time, knowing there's also such an anti-queer backlash mm. right now. Will we be forward in that time or will we be backwards? It's, Tell yeah. me why you say there's an anti-queer backlash right now. I think similar to just feminism and seeing that backlash. I think whenever you see progress in any way, you've experienced the resistance to that progress. And so I think that's, you know, you're looking at the the amount of articles that have been published about trans people in sport and, say, you know, graph it for me, you know, <laughs> you know, from 10 years ago versus now. There's obviously a backlash in terms of what's in the media, which voices are being centred on trans folk and, and, and rights. And I, and I you'd say the same thing about feminism and looking at the men's rights activists. Whenever you see progress, you, you'll see that resistance to that progress. I want to take an opportunity to talk about your PhD because I think your PhD work was really challenging. So tell me about your PhD. 
My PhD was on animal cruelty in the live export trade. In terms of it being challenging, I've certainly looking at you know footage of you know the live export trade and and that was was definitely challenging but I think a lot of us in that justice space where we're combing through data that often you know you experience vicarious trauma and you don't really kind of know that that's what you're experiencing mm. and I think that's you can't shy away from it and it's also why you do the work mm. because of the horrors of it so whether you're talking about you know institutional child sex abuse or whatever often a lot of us are geared to that work because we're so passionate about it but being a researcher means you've got to then sit with that and sometimes take on that trauma and that you don't know about so yeah it, that was probably one of I guess the, the the biggest challenges I think the other challenges were just the nature of PhD work if you know in general but also trying to then take on teaching on, on the side mm. and just trying to survive through it I feel like every, you know every person who's done a PhD they're a survivor <laughs> we can we can bond we can trauma bond <laughs> So how did you end up in the DV space? So yeah, it was in probably that third year kind of stage where you're starting to look more around, you know, what's your future beyond a PhD and while I absolutely love teaching, it also didn't have any income over the holiday period. And I also felt working for a university for the real world would appreciate real world <coughs> experience. Which I always feel funny because teaching is real world. Um, as, you know, it is its own experience. Yeah. So, um, I don't feel like that's not the real world, which I always just find funny as a, as a slogan. But certainly I, you know, have... There's been colleagues that I've that have worked with that you know had worked in policing and had that industry experience. So yeah, w- wanted to look at that, and I applied for a lot of different part-time jobs. I, I applied for part-time jobs at the university as well. I definitely just needed the income at that stage, but I started to look for you know, like ethical jobs, the website, and just trying to find jobs that would align with my values, that would find me in a space where I could strengthen my my activism and strengthen my sense of justice and what it looks like in practice and so yeah found a, a job in a, in a DV service that was doing it was a mixture of admin and data rep- and reporting that were the responsibilities at the time and it was part-time so I was able to to do both mm. and yeah and I did that for two years and that was it was great it strengthened my teaching because I was able to draw on industry experience within the work and how the theories that we were talking about how it actually translated to my to the work so yeah I, I really appreciated being able to do both it definitely strengthened my work as a teacher you know I think students love I think anecdotes they love an anecdote I mean I love an anecdote (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know I'm a story girl yeah I think it's you know it's great to I think you know being able to say you know and if you get a job as a probation parole officer this is where that might come up yeah or if you're talking about you know policing this is the experience of victim survivors of DV when they're experiencing that as within the system. So I think, yeah, when you're actually able to draw on your work experience, it really enriched my teaching. And then, yeah, when I when I graduated from my PhD, it 
it was a toss-up between if I had gotten an interview <laughs> for an academic position, whether you know I would have gone that direction because that was always the dream. It was to be uh, a lecturer. Thankfully, in during my PhD, I got to lecture. I got mm. to unit coordinate. I you know got to take over units and I got to experience it. So I, in terms of the bucket list, I can say that I've lectured at a university, and that was the dream. It was what I wanted to do for a decade. So thankfully, I did that. But yeah, at that same time, after the PhD, the job came up in the DV service of facilitating men's groups. So it was that, yeah, fork in the road. If, if an academic job had come up instead or a postdoc, it might have looked differently. And that two years in admin in DV would have been that, that chapter. But instead, yeah, I took the job four days a week facilitating men's groups for, there was three groups a week. So at that, my first year, I was doing three groups a week of the men's work, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, and then Friday, coming to uni and teaching four tutorials <laughs> uh, which was an intense <laughs> so, so intense I it was so hard to remember names oh. you know because like it's it's funny people always talk about you know how important it is in teaching to to learn people's names but it's so important when you're dealing with perpetrators as well and trying to help them on their change journey you've got to build that rapport you you need to be able to use their names to human you know you've got to yeah. come in that space and you know see them as, as humans and have that empathy for their change journey so you need to learn those names so yeah to do that for that many people was was really hard and so yeah after a year of I don't know if I did that for yeah I think it was about a year of maybe trying to juggle that workload and then was able to go full-time in the DV space and now I yeah was then doing unit coordinating work and some research and eventually the teaching just had to be the, the first thing that went. Yeah. Mm. I feel like that's a loss to teaching. <laughs> I love it. I still love it. And thankfully I get to do the guest lecture for perpetrators um, in the DV unit. And that's, yeah. yeah, still get to feed this all a little bit that way. What's it like being a trans man in the DV sector? Yeah, very interesting. I mean, when I first got the job, I was the only dude in the DV service and it was the first time they'd hired one. <laughs> and... I mean, at that point, I hadn't started taking testosterone. I think, yeah, it's, I think, and I can't speak to any, every trans person experience, but you think you butcher than what you are until you start taking tea. And then you realise, actually, your voice was hella high. I mean, I think anyone who knew me could say my voice was very high and that my laugh was, was very high and, and loud. I once got told by a recruitment agency that I could never work in an office because my laugh was too loud. So rude. I mean, um, as well with a big <laughs> voice, I kind of feel you there. I'm like, no, I feel for that's okay. I feel like you're embracing that yeah. is important. Yeah. But yeah, so, you know, I definitely had, I think, some reactions around being in that space as a guy, you know, that people could no longer freely say bye ladies at the end of the day and kind of you being that agitator in that space. And that was a, a difficult, I think, transition. I think eventually now more guys are being hired in mm. DV spaces because we're getting more funding for perpetrator work or for doing you know support for male victims and things like that so I think there's things are maybe changing but you do still have kind of it is still a very binary workplace very much so you yeah. only worked with male perpetrators yeah what are your observations in engaging with men yeah I mean I think I mean, for me, part of why I do that work is because I, I believe domestic violence is a community problem and it needs mm. a community solution. So being part of that community solution and seeing that on the spectrum of, of you know, violence against women, every man has to reconcile that they're on that spectrum and do that internal work of unpacking their male privilege and how it shows up in their life, how they benefit from it, how they reject it. So I think if, you, if you're open to doing that, 
work, that reflective work, you don't go into that room othering yourself from the men. That you know, So there's, I think, a, a part of you fronting up there and saying, all right, what are we going to do about this issue? And that's, yeah, it's an inter- I think it's, just, it's very interesting being a, a guy in that space versus being a woman in that space. I find it hard because I don't, I'm not out as trans in that mm-hmm. space. I'm out as a, a queer man. The majority of times they know I've got a male partner. When I first started, I tried to be in the closet and then, you know, one participant asked me directly if I was gay <laughs> and I don't know if it was the hands, you know. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, certainly um, got outed by a guy. And then one group I accidentally use male pronouns for my partner instead of gender neutral pronouns so I was doing three groups a week and one group I was out one group I didn't realize I was out the next group I was still in the closet and after a certain while I was like this is fuck way too much energy for for no one else's benefit for my own and also I I went in there with such such assumptions about the homophobia Mm. that I would experience in that space the dangers of myself you know the being scared to walk to the car, all that kind of stuff. And it, it, there were assumptions made that, it, it, yeah, I didn't experience as much as what I thought I was going to. And, I mean, part of that is probably the authority you have in the room and whether, you know, they're complying essentially. And, I mean, there was guys in the group who had gay brothers. There were a lot of guys that challenged gender norms in that way. So I went in with a lot of assumptions around the dangers to myself that that were hyped up compared to the woman that I was co-facilitating with yeah. who was experiencing far more dangers in that in that workplace or certainly the feelings of. So, yeah, that was kind of different. But, yeah, certainly not being, not being out as trans is really difficult in that work. I mean, self-disclosure and talking about yourself, not every facilitator does it and you, you don't have to, but I think sometimes it's powerful for the male facilitator to be able to mm. bring personal experiences to say, well, that's not my experience or, you know, whatever. But I have to kind of rewrite my history because if they will ask me about my, my brother, you know, or having siblings, if that gets brought up, I don't... I may now have a brother-brother relationship, but I didn't grow up with a brother-brother mm. relationship. And so, you know, I just have to... You, you know, I am still censoring myself in a way that... As a teacher at a university, I didn't have to censor myself at that point. It was my choice whether I wanted to, but not because of safety or, or anything like that. So that's a, a yeah, a challenging part. I mean, I got a when I started the work, I <clears throat> I got my double mastectomy, and that was challenging in the workplace as well because you, you know you have to wear a binder still for a certain time, and then you're like, fuck, can they see the binder under the shirt? I couldn't lift my arms of you know above my shoulders for about six months, so. Could I write on the right board, but only that you know what I mean? And then how do you make sure you still model equality with your your female co-facilitator if she's the one that's actually doing all the writing on the board? So there was a lot of challenges of navigating that space in different stages of my transition. But yeah, overall it's incredibly rewarding work and the people that I've worked with have been, you know, incredibly safe to be around as as part of that transition. So I, I was out before I started in that work and I was out before I started teaching. But Going from using gender-neutral pronouns to he/his is a was a, tr- a transition that I did experience as an academic, and starting testosterone and getting mastectomy that was a, a stage that I did go through. You know, so I was out the whole time, or certainly navigating the world as best as I could as a guy. But yeah, there's been different challenges along the way. I have a thousand questions, <laughs> uh, but we have limited time. <laughs> I'm curious what your advice would be to young men. Th- thinking about working in the gendered violence space? Yeah, so I, I mean, you've got to do the work yourself. 
one reflective tool that we use with the men and as a manager I get my facilitators to also use a reflective tool but it's essentially a, a logging process uh, it comes from the Duluth model so picture I guess some columns and the first column is your actions your second column is your intentions behind those actions your third is your beliefs and then the fourth is your the effects of that on yourself on your partner on your on your kids or others so pick a moment in your life where things didn't go well in your relationship or there might have been a conflict and log it out. What did you do? What did you say? What were your actions? How were you behaving? What were you hoping to achieve by behaving that way? By the words that you chose to use? What beliefs were supporting that behaviour? What did you have to believe about your partner? What did you have to believe about yourself? Believe about relationships? And yeah, what was the impact on that behaviour? So, you know, I'm not talking about if in a I'm saying that for people who don't have any domestic violence in the relationship, who there's no fear in that relationship, but there's still been conflict. Mm. There's still been times where maybe you're like, oh, wish I'd worded that differently. Or I don't know if that behavior really lined with my values. I, I've never met someone who can't complete that log. And I think that's the work that we all have to do, especially in this line of work. If, you, if you're asking the men to do reflective work, you've got to be willing to do it yourself. So I, I think, yeah, if you're gonna do this work, you, you should be able to reflect you, should, you need to go through a critical reflection, I think, process around your own behaviours, uh, specifically talking to the men in terms of how does male privilege show up in their lives. Mm. I think you have to do that work. Is male privilege really a thing, though? Yes, very much so. I mean, I, as a teacher, even looking at... I mean, the research shows how negative student feedback is for women teachers and I experienced it my my teaching scores you know the feedback from students vastly improved the minute I started presenting and identifying as a male like the there were differences and you talk to some of my female colleagues who would talk about their teaching scores and they would get comments about their appearance they'd get comments around talking about what they did on the weekend very misogynistic feedback that I just never experienced I mean I remember just the I mean the difference between getting off the train and, and walking, walking to my car and that experience being incredibly different. You know, if I presented more feminine, having, uh, you know, men on the train come sit next to me and making me feel threatened and calling my partner who, who was picking me up and saying, can you come and meet me at the, at the door of the train? I don't have to do that now. That's, I don't fear for my safety in the same way. So absolutely, I benefit from presenting the way and society treating me a certain way. Absolutely. God, I'm just in awe because I can't imagine a world where you don't have to think about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's certainly in terms of, you know, intersectionality, you know, in terms of, I mean, my partner and I, we no longer, very rarely do we hold hands in public. Mm. And I remember a time when we always did. And I mean, we've sometimes had conversations about it, but, you know, during the marriage equality debate in particular, I think something just shifted where we no longer felt safe to be affectionate in public. And I don't think we ever really got that back. I mean, we've been called, you know, faggots walking to our car in the valley and being and actually chased to our car. Mm. We never experienced that when we presented differently. I mean, I'm, it's funny, like, so much of how I get treated is who I'm with. Mm. So, you know, so, like, when I was by myself, I, majority of the time I got treated like I was a lesbian. That was how I presented and how I got treated by men. But if I was with my partner, either they were confused <laughs> about how that worked and made some assumptions, or, yeah, I, I benefited from appearing straight whereas like now appearing the way that we are we experience homophobia more and so you know there's certain times where I, yeah if I'm by myself I don't have to fear for my security but if I'm with my partner and we're being affectionate we look around yeah, 100%. and you, you just do yeah that so that is still there so and obviously you know in terms of you know men of color experiencing race, racism and racial mm-hmm. um 
uh, vilification and, and that fear, they will experience male privilege, but they don't, they don't experience white privilege. So yeah, understanding where you benefit from the world, how you get to navigate the world in a way that other people might not. That's what male privilege is. It's really just, when is it easier for you in the ways that it isn't? And how are you making it easier for, the, for those people that it's not? What are you doing to address that? such a complex picture of intersectionalities even when you just consider that one single issue of mm. safety and when you can and can't feel safe yeah in the world all around that same person which is amazing when you begin to unpack it and what it is i'm thinking though that the men that are in your workshops are not necessarily privileged men though yeah, so again, it's that intersectionality, right? So they might not have class privilege, um, you know, and we think about the who actually turns up to a men's group if you're mandated by child safety, probation and parole with an intervention order from court. We do have self-referred men, so men who are you know, putting up their hand and wanting to address their behaviour. But even then, they're still soft and a social mandate um, around their behaviour. But yeah, you, you certainly, as our research shows, the amount of men that are getting arrested versus actually going to the courts versus mm. going into jail, getting on a probation parole order, um, we see that in our groups. The, the men who are coming through, we're not seeing, you know, the NRL players. Yeah, uh, they're not turning up to, to our groups. You're welcome to uh, to come. <laughs> You're welcome. I just feel like these behaviours should be compulsory for anyone who wants to kick a ball around a field and get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to do yeah. it. And it's funny because a lot of the men will say, you know, this should be taught in schools. Yeah. You know, a lot of what we're talking about, and not just the use of violence, but how to have equal and safe relationships, how to have respectful relationships, and I think everyone can benefit from doing that reflective work. Yeah checking yourself, uh, what are my beliefs actually around this and, and how is that being displayed in my relationship? I think a lot of the conversations we have would be beneficial for everyone to be having. But yeah, certainly it's when you talk about privilege in that space, being really mindful of where's that going to land? Yeah. Where's that going to land? And I mean, similar at, in a class situation, you can have a very big mix of, of students and doing the, the privilege checklists and things like that. Are, are you singling out people of, of, you know, different experiences in that classroom and what's who does that who does that activity actually benefit mm. yeah what's it like seeing the moment of change in men yeah i mean few and far between so let's just say that first <laughs> let's not put too much hope <laughs> in the world. You, uh, i was going for the positive belief in change <laughs> no but i mean yeah the the light the light bulb moments are pretty great when you do feel like you've experienced them. Certainly when there's been men who, you know, when we talk about intergenerational trauma and we talk yeah. about, you know, children's experience of violence and when men start to realise how trauma, childhood trauma has impacted their lives and, you know, do you want to be defined by that trauma and and realising that they're using the behaviours that, they, that their dad might have mm. used and they've got kids now and what do they want for their kids and the wake-up call that they've now p passed on that trauma. So that can be the wake-up call. I think dealing with fathers is often a lot easier to be able to get that internal motivation to change. So yeah, de definitely when you get those light bulb moments. But I mean, when you think about our work is, you know, the behaviour change of, of men as one component. With our programs, every partner or ex-partner who's experienced these violences and aggrieved will get support from a women's advocate. And it's through that process that she'll get safety planning, she might get support to go make a breach, she might get support to go into refuge. You know, we do the work to increase women's safety and sense of justice. So we might have a case where, yeah, she's finally, finally feels supported and safe to go make a breach, and now he's 
you know, that might be he's on an order, he goes, or he's returned to custody. That can be considered a success of the functioning of the program mm. because we've moved her closer to safety. We've, you know, we've increased her sense of justice in the community. Yeah, okay, he didn't change, but also being held accountable for your violence is a step on that change journey. Men need to be held accountable for the violence they're, they're using. So, you know, hopefully then he can get on an order or refer back into the program in the future. So, yeah, we might not... 16-week programs are a very short time mm. to, to engage with men and sometimes it is just planting that seed for him to do further work down the track or to do the program again in the future. But, yeah, so that's why we don't hinge our our, our program on, on, on his behaviour change very much. Where you know, how, how have we helped to facilitate the safety of women and children in the community? Yeah. Mm. Brody, how do you maintain hope for masculinity? <laughs> I mean, it helps when you feel like you, you are a good, a good bloke yourself. You know, if you, so that's, that's helpful. I think in this line of work, you have to surround yourself with good men. I think it's especially hard to, if you are coming home to a man, I think it's very different if you're a facilitator who comes home to women or is single and doesn't have to deal with someone else's problems at the end of the night. You know, I'll often tell my partner, I'm like, I've dealt with enough men's problems today where you're, you're going to have to process this one on yourself tonight, um, but I'm happy to be there for you tomorrow. So, you know, you've got to do your own kind of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, self-care at the end of the night. Yeah, but surround yourself with good men. I think that's how you have, you have hope. Um, yeah. What do you do for self-care? Uh, exercise. Yeah, going, you know, my partner and I will often just go for a walk around the block. And that's the first thing we do when we get home. We used because we both used to work at QT, we would be driving to and from work together and that was when we had time together. So now it's the, the walk when we both get home and that kind of is our chance to, yeah, debrief about the day. And that's a really lovely little routine mm. to yeah. have. And the exercise helps a lot in that, yeah. Yeah, I also feel like it doesn't have to be hardcore exercise no walking yeah exactly sometimes it's just giving your body the break of yeah. movement in a different yeah space and just nature so yeah. yeah don't i don't want to be on a treadmill like get me outside we'll go for a hike or something and that's yeah doing anything out in nature it's definitely helpful this is a question i usually ask graduates but i don't quite know how you're going to answer it <laughs> how do you feel your degree equipped you for working in the justice sector? Yeah, so I guess, I mean, could me, it's a little bit different because I didn't do a Bachelor of Justice. Yeah, you did do um, Yeah, so I did, you know, so yeah, it was in politics, economy and society, and then the second major was literature. So in terms of the the ethics, the, the frameworks, you know, looking at, you know, sociology, feminism, criminology, I mean, certainly that it laid the groundwork mm. that then fed into the justice honours component for me I'd say it's actually probably more the teaching that probably end up upskilling me more which is an interesting experience to be teaching units that you didn't take yourself as a student which would happen for a lot of academics if they're especially going to a different institution so yeah I, th- I think definitely to do DV work you need to have a good gendered understanding of domestic violence you need to have a good feminist framework and I, I had that and often this kind of line of work as a manager now is you're recruiting for values more than you're recruiting for the degree which is that's incredible which is really yeah so I mean whether you've got a justice student a social work student a counselling student do they have a good gendered understanding of domestic violence do they have a feminist framework yeah that's that's the biggest thing because that's the hardest thing to upskill on 
to to change someone's belief systems around equality in a relationship, around male privilege, around yeah different responsibilities, uh, co-parenting. Like that's if you've got someone with those kind of belief systems that it's around gendered stereotypes, that's so much harder. 100%. Than than someone who has a different degree, but those that degree was still transferable. It still enables them to do the work. So yeah, it's and I you know I'm still not speaking for every workplace, but for me and um, where I work now, definitely recruiting for values. So yeah, I, th- I think you know in terms of students when you're going in those interviews is looking at looking up their website, looking up their their core values, the principles of an organisation, and being able to speak to that in the interview. Definitely, I think. Ooh steer you in the right direction also figuring out if your values align absolutely with that is one of the key criticisms we get all the time in justice and i'm sure you've heard it mm. as well in your experience that we're too political <laughs> that we talk too much about the big values positions and i think like for me i don't understand how justice isn't political yeah. to start with yeah. like it just it has to be political Whatever side of the fence or wherever on the continuum you see mm. it, we talk about inherently political things. But also I think I appreciate figuring out where you are in terms of your values mm. and modelling. This is where I sit in terms of my values. This is how I've come to this position with my values. As a human, I can't separate my values from anything that I do in my life, mm. whether it's the personal or it's the everyday, based on the great feminist mantra that the personal is political. Yeah. And you can't get away from that. And it's interesting to hear you reflect on the importance of values in the kind of front-facing work. Absolutely. I mean, if you've got the value, the opinion of, well, why didn't she just leave? If you've got that opinion, that's going to come across. It's going to come across in your safety planning with women, it's going to come across to how you have those enga- those conversations with the person using violence. If you're in children, child protection, it's probably going to impact on the judgments you're making about her ability to parent, you know, and her protective factors. Like in terms of the justice space, if you've got those values, those those opinions, it comes out in the work, mm. and that is so much harder to train to to upskill someone to change those values. Yeah. So like it's like I don't feel like at the front facing really frontline stuff you should be in the business of changing your workers <laughs> yeah 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 definitely and i mean but it's just it's harder work yeah it's definitely harder to to get people to do that work i mean i get 16 weeks with a with a man to do that work so you you know it's investment with, with the staff members as well you know i mean we look, talk about policing we talk about cultural cultural change so yeah like how long have we been having that conversation around cultural change even though we know the culture that needs like to change, forever. we know the culture we want them to be embodying. So why why is it so difficult? So, you know, so like it's so many whereas, reasons, Brody. Yeah, so many reasons. Whereas it's so much easier if you recruit police who have a gendered understanding of DV. Yeah. If that was number one requirement for police, given yeah. the amount of DV that police actually do as part of their job, why aren't they recruiting for DV? DV values, DV knowledge. 100% given the, I guess, the things that we're seeing coming out of the Queensland inquiry into Mm. police, even in the last couple of months and weeks, Mm. we see that that misogyny continues to be a thing Mm. in police and that impacts on how that those decisions are made around domestic violence that impacts how orders are rolled out and incidents are responded to. And I think if you're not solid in that going in... Mm. It's so much easier to just be swayed with the tide of the culture because resisting culture is difficult. Absolutely. 
it's hard. It's the activism stuff, mm. right? Mm. Like it's hard work. Yeah. To be singled out as that individual mm. sticking your head above the parapet yeah. all of the time. Do you have a favourite theorist theory? Just completely changed tacks there. <laughs> In terms of um, my work, I mean, I mean, obviously I'm a, I'm a Foucault loyalist in terms of (laughs) obviously in terms of the yeah and in terms of activism I'm I'm and especially because I had the literature degree but yeah I love words I love the power of words I love the the power of how we produce knowledge throughout through our discourse and yeah produce power so yeah I'm very much a loyalist in in regards to Foucaultian's understanding Foucault's understanding of discourse I mean and and Batchy is definitely Carol Batchy is definitely someone Um, in terms of DV I mean yeah London Bancroft's work is still I think seminal people mm. I think if you're going to work in this space go read the book why does he do that yeah that's definitely I think yeah I could go on about kind of academics I mean animal because I do too many different <laughs> topics right but I want to talk about yeah I mean I went and saw Peter Singer recently do, do a presentation at QPAC and that was really interesting as well yeah in terms of I'm not saying I agree with all his his his, his views his utilitarianism views and framework but yeah in terms of animal liberation as a, as, a, as a text it was life-changing I think reading that yeah um, sexual politics and meat changed my life the sexual politics that was a, such a big shift for me to to become vegan because I was I mean I'm pescarian and vegetarian and not understanding why dairy was a problem and just really starting to use the same concepts of feminism and oppression and exploitation and I had that language, but I, I didn't see meat and, and, and dairy and, and animal bodies in, in that way. And reading The Sexual Politics of Meats really made me question my eating and my, my framework. So, yeah, that was a life-changing text. You can feel free not to answer these questions. <laughs> As someone who has used Foucault and also kind of loved that construct of discourse, how do you reconcile that he necessarily was not the greatest dude. <laughs> what do you think we need a footnote every time we every time we use it? And by the way, we we don't endorse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I you know, especially in this line of uh, the work in DV, is you make assumptions that, as I said, every male is on that kind of continuum of shit behaviour, and it manifests in different ways. And yeah, looking at yeah, I, I don't really know much more to say. It doesn't doesn't surprise me when I found out. Yeah. It, it, yeah, and I feel that way about every time you hear about a male celebrity using abusive behaviours for the pe- women in their lives or on set or things like that. It it never surprises me. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a clear picture on? And I don't. I'm going to say, <laughs> I struggle backwards and forwards on separating the author from the work. Yeah, like the art from the artist. Yeah. The from, and it, like it's different with, but like, I mean, I like it is different. And it is not different in academia with separating the art from the artist. Like. You know, for someone like me, it probably never matters if I read the Harry Potter book <laughs> ever again in my life. But it does matter if these theorists who are core to my critical thinking, I have to rethink my use of yeah. them, and that's a challenge. Yeah, like can you find someone else who just cites them and cite their work instead? Yes, I can. And often, I mean, with Foucault, it's easier to find people that have made it plainer to understand yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, you know yeah, like, like like because it's difficult find someone who has done that work and reference them instead I think you know I mean yeah I've 
I think when it comes to, and it's the same for veganism, when it comes to, am I financially supporting them? Yeah. That's what I, in terms of this capitalist structure we're in, you know, how do we navigate that? And am I lining their pockets is something that I, I think about more often than not. I still get a vegan mopper at Hunger Jacks, though, so don't take me at... <laughs> it's not like I'm sitting here going, you know, I'm perfect. But, you know, I would never buy or support anything for J.K. Rowling. And I think yeah. it's rad when people don't. But if you own the Harry Potter books already, go read them. You know, like, that's she's not... There's no impact there whatsoever on whether you read Harry Potter. Go to the library. Break, um, buy them secondhand. Yeah, you know, um, you know, when it comes to movies, like, yeah. I, and I, I don't illegally download, but I don't care if you do. Don't torrent if you want to. Um, go That's watch the real conspiracy. Go, yeah, people. go watch fan, fantastical fantasy beasts, whatever it is. Yeah. So I mean, I think if you could not financially support them, is a great thing to do. Yeah, that's a really interesting yeah. distinction to make there. But I mean, you have freegans. I don't know if you've had a freegan. So you, they're vegan unless it's free. <laughs> so for example, there's been some vegans that will dumpster dive. And that's the only way that they can survive. And yeah, they're not, they're not, they might not be eating vegan food, but in terms of how they can survive and however they want to eat. So, you know, vegan is, you know, generally where necessary and where possible. And there's a lot, a lot of, you know, my partner's um, a vegan as well, but when he was in the military, out in exercises where they don't cater to vegans in the military. So where possible, he would switch his um, meat packets with someone else's I had like the p- potato in Apparently like those pa- right. yeah he was like switching out meat with the potato packets and then yeah being c- incredibly undernourished for, yeah. <laughs> for a period of time um you know so yeah where possible where practical the the potato had dairy in it you know I mean look I'm gonna say I'm a vegetarian more or less <laughs> yeah. like, we don't buy meat at home but we have dogs and we buy meat. Well, yeah, our, exactly. Our dogs if you have animals, yes. Yeah. Like unethical to not provide them with the nutrients that they exactly. need. And I feel like these are some of the conversations that we have that, like, I have great admiration for the vegan choices. Mm. I also love cheese. Yeah. And I feel like I carry so much emotional load. <laughs> I give up the cheese and I'm really sorry. Yeah. I'm really sorry, but that's my that's my human limitation. Yeah. yeah. Right there. And I really and but I Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know what to go with no. there go. Ethics is a funny one. Ethics, these are the kind of ethical decisions that I think we make and we are challenged about yeah. every day. Top tips for students surviving at uni. Find your people. You know, as a, I guess as a queer person, you know, I found the, the, the queer collectives where I found so many people. I found language through the queer mm-hmm. collective. Didn't even know what trans was, really, until I spoke with other folk. Genderqueer, that these were work. I mean, obviously, it's different now for the, the young'uns with their TikToks. But, <laughs> but, but if you... have just a couple of old <laughs> I'm an elder now, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, does that make me... <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, find your people, uh, you know, uh, there's, you know, women's spaces. I think, you know, find ways that you feel safe on campus is the best way, I think, to, to navigate it. I think, yeah, I mean, I had the, the privilege that I didn't need to work during my undergraduate degree. I did some contract work every now and then and during holidays. But yeah, I was quite privileged that I didn't have to juggle that. So I can't speak to those difficulties. But yeah, turn up to class. Um, <laughs> I say that as a student as well as an academic. I feel like all of the academics are like, when I ask this question, they're like, 
question of academics all the time. <laughs> so much what I'm hearing is, dear God, please come to class. <laughs> please do. Enjoy it. I think if you can find, if you're not finding what you're studying interesting, motivating, passionate, then you're probably not going to enjoy the job that it's mm-hmm. leading to. So really reflect on why you're doing the degree. Studying is so much easier when you actually care about what you've been tasked to do as an assignment, if you actually are getting joy from it. But if you're not getting joy from it, from the study, which, you know, sometimes is the, the, you talk to professionals, they would love to go back to full-time study. They would love it. So this is actually the glory time where you actually are getting time to really focus on yourself when you're learning and, and doing that, that thinky work. Like, it's just, it's fun. Like, studying is fun. And if you don't find it fun, go see a careers counsellor. Go debrief with some folk about what you actually want out of life. A lot of degrees are transferable in terms of skills, and I'm not saying that they're ever a waste, but certainly it is easier if you enjoy it. And if you're not enjoying it, maybe take some time out, or maybe this isn't the right degree for you, or just, yeah, try to balance it as well as something else that might help you get the the job afterwards. Because if you're not enjoying it, you're probably also struggling to get sevens. Yeah. Right? Because the sevens are, you generally are enjoying it to be able to do that so if you're not if you if if you're finding that you're you're just scraping through you know peace get degrees you know if that's the case then maybe also look for doing that that internship or doing student placements you know those opportunities in my area I've had justice students come do uh, work placement in our work and as you know observe the men's groups done the administration side of things and was like yep this is the work I want to do and have then gone on to become a facilitator. All worked out, this isn't what I want to do. I want to work with victims, survivors. I don't want to work with the perpetrators. So find those opportunities as well because they look great on CV. Yeah. Uh, they also can make the, the the learning process, I think, more enjoyable when you're seeing that real-world application as well. So look for those opportunities. Those, yeah. My reflections on that is, I feel like the flip side of that is do whatever you're passionate about and make it work mm. as a career. Oh, yeah. I also want to shout out and say, like, I love our seven students, but I want to pay homage to those students who are getting the fives and are loving it, mm. but because of life, don't have that freedom yeah. to, like, I mean, I was a very average student because of life. Mm. And think, if you're passionate about it, stick with it and make it work. Yeah. Yeah. Are you enjoying it? Are you, yeah, are you finding that? Is there that passion that you have for it, like regardless of the grades? But yeah, are you, are you passionate about it? Or at least deeply curious. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. Curiosity is a beautiful yeah. thing. Are yeah. you deeply curious about this? Because that's also a great yeah. motivator. Mm. Uh, Brody, I really have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you <laughs> no this worries. afternoon. Thank you. I really, oh, it's just, I just think that you're a thoroughly enjoyable human being. Uh, and also, I'm really looking forward to you helping me figure out this spreadsheet. <laughs> no worries. Anytime. <laughs> no worries. Thanks again. This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Associate Professor Jody Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams. That's me. Music by Poddington Bear. And this podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening.